0: Good evening, good morning, good afternoon, depending on where you're at. Welcome to another episode of Two Developers Down Under. I am here today with Kai Koenig, as always. How are you doing, Kai? I'm doing very well. Good morning, Mark. Good morning. It is... uh, 7.30 7:30 in the AM here, so it's not as bad as uh, some of the previous episodes we've we've done, where I've been up at 5:30 or 6:30 in the morning. So maybe well, I'm a little more awake.
1: We're actually quite late, you know, compared to some other recordings we've done.
0: Exactly. So maybe I'll be a little bit more perky today and uh, on the ball. Yeehaw!
1: No, awesome. That sounds good.
0: <laughs> so let's uh, let's start off our thing with uh, what happened today. What exciting stuff is uh, have you managed to find of happened uh, on today's anniversary
1: one really exciting thing in, oh yeah today in 1977 star wars was released in theaters and coming off that anniversary basically um, apparently the la city council had a um, star wars day like a official holiday basically pretty much Did people uh, get the
0: day off <laughs> i I don't know I don't know
1: if that worked basically, but they had a Star Wars day in honor um of the um thirtieth anniversary of the release date in two thousand seven okay, so you know quite interesting really
0: <laughs> I'm sure there are a few Star Wars fans amongst some of the people who may listen to it
1: potentially there are yes, I would agree to that.
0: Um, I found a few other ones. Oh, what was the other ones I found? Uh, today's the birth of Miles Davis, a very famous jazz musician. Yep. Um, oh, and Kennedy also announced today, the uh, 50th anniversary that he announced he was going to put a man on the moon.
1: Oh, okay. Interesting. Did it
0: happen? Didn't it? Did people go to the moon? Maybe.
1: Yeah, we we could, could have... <laughs> that would be conspiracy conspiracy theory. Would be a really, really interesting topic for... <laughs> His own episode, I think, right? Like talking about conspiracy theories about the moon landing. And I actually know a few people in our community who have very strong opinions both directions. Oh, really? Yes. (laughs) I'm not going, you know, maybe one of those people is actually listening to this podcast. I'm not going to mention any names, but we've been at a conference in um, Queenstown in New Zealand a few years ago. And during one of the dinners there... Some interesting discussions spun off them, basically, you know, like people got really enraged on both ends. Like there was definitely no moon landing. Other people said like, well, you know, my, I know people who worked on that project, blah, blah, blah. So really interesting.
0: That's really funny, actually. That uh, (laughs) the the opinions can be so polarizing. Yeah, Yeah, totally. So that's, that's great. So, okay. did you find anything else? I just looking actually I don't think I see anything in particular Yeah,
1: when I had a look at the list of You know, birthdays or death Or something, of, you know, that happened today I couldn't really find many Really interesting people to mention I mean, Miles Davis is one of them And there are a lot of others, obviously But, you know, yeah. nothing that really sp- sprang into my mind So, I don't know Yeah, maybe a bit of a boring day today, when it comes to that, at least.
0: Okay, well, why don't we get stuck into some content today? I think uh, today we're going to be talking pretty much about me going to CF Objective.
1: Oh my god, you've been (laughs) at CF Objective?
0: Yeah, apparently I was at CF Objective. Oh my gosh,
1: awesome. So how was it?
0: It was really, really good. It was a really good year. Um, Conference was organized very well. We We got hot breakfast every morning, which was really nice. Um,
1: like hot breakfast. A... Do, do we do we talk about you know proper breakfast or like American hot breakfast?
0: <laughs> well, first day, first day was really good. It was like bacon and eggs and and sausage. You know all the stuff you can't eat because you're vegetarian. Um, <laughs> so really good for me. Um, second day, second day actually was, was the probably the only complaint I could have about the conference was second day was a bit of a disappointment. I think the hot the hot meal was something like oatmeal, and I didn't even see it. So, what I ended up eating was like watermelon and, and cantaloupe for breakfast. Okay. Um, and then the third day, we had uh, bacon and egg uh, sandwiches, which were quite tasty.
1: Okay. Yeah, I had an actually on the topic of conference breakfast, I had a very interesting discussion with Mike McHugh yesterday. Oh, yeah. Um, for the people who don't know him, he's um, one of the um, solutions consultants at adobe in in australia and he was yep. over here in wellington for the adobe cs5 roadshow and then he presented at our user groups last night and we went to dinner afterwards we talked a bit about you know conference breakfasts yep. and we talked about particularly max because a few years ago at max they had um those cinnabons Bam, for I remember that. breakfast you know cinnabons and black coffee and i thought you know, really, you know that's that's not <laughs> breakfast. That's just shocking. Basically, and you know, Mike totally agreed, and he told us told us a few stories about their annual sales conference they have in the U.S. and the type of breakfast you know Adobe puts out there, basically like you know breakfast burritos, breakfast tacos, and stuff like that. You know, and looking at that from a I don't know European, New Zealand, Australian point of view, where you yep. really want to have a bit of a healthy breakfast, like a muesli maybe or toast you know yeah. something
0: yeah, yeah
1: like oh really people you know come on
0: <laughs> just just give me an IV line plug it in stick a whole bunch of sugar water in. exactly and we'll yes. <laughs> give me a coronary just right now that would be great i
1: think that the cinnabon breakfast at max that was my personal you know ever low of kind of conference breakfast i thought no
0: that's pretty that is actually pretty funny i like that that's pretty good uh,
1: so, okay, let's come back to <laughs> CF Objective and, you know, move on from breakfast to some...
0: <laughs> we're hungry. Stuff. I think that's where it's coming from.
1: So, you were involved with the keynote, right?
0: I was indeed. It's very, very true.
1: That's interesting. That Was, was it a f- the first keynote you ever sort of gave at a conference?
0: It was actually. Okay. Uh, I'm not uh, necessarily that... Um, so what I'm of looking for unaccustomed to speaking in front of an audience, but uh, yeah it was very it was very interesting being part of the keynote and it was very very uh very humbling and uh, quite a fun experience to be up in front of everyone at the beginning uh, How, how of long
1: was the keynote ninety minutes
0: um, I should check the piece of paper. I think it was only sixty minutes actually to be honest, and okay. we split it up between four of us or five of us, depending on what you're looking at it um, It was a good time we had a uh, uh, Scott Stroh's was uh, basically emceeing the whole thing and doing a few jokes in between stuff. Um, uh, Ray Camden came, came up basically first. We split it up between basically four four mini sessions between each of us. Mm-hmm. Um, Ray Camden got up, showed us a bunch of very amusing extensions using Cold Fusion Builder. Uh, some of which in which he uh, basically went, "Okay, how do I? Here's an extension that makes things more secure. It just sticks to see if a board at the top. Uh, how do you make it?" Perform faster, basically just deletes all your code. <laughs> <laughs> things like that. It was actually pretty funny. Yep. So going through different things you could do with extensions. Um, Jason Dean did a, a really interesting session about creating CF developers. And he was talking about how basically people, when looking for, for people to work at their company or their CF development team, should really be looking for web developers first and CF developers second. Because you can always teach somebody called Fusion. Um, and trying to basically push the the community to go out and create more coffee fusion developers. The, the onus is on them to go out and create more coffee fusion developers. It's not on anybody else. That's that's how it works in every other language. So it really should work that way with us as well. And it was yeah, it was a pretty motivating talk. Actually, I was quite impressed by it. Um, and he was basically saying yeah, you know, if you're running job ads, right. Web developer with you know seven years experience, not Cold Fusion developer with seven years experience, and then basically once you get them in the room, turn around and say, "Yeah, it's a ColdFusion job. Um, let me show you something about the language, and you know, we can we can teach you how to use it in you know very very quickly, and you can be very productive very very quickly, and that way you know you can actually find some people to do some work, which is really good, and because there is a shortage out there, it can be hard finding ColdFusion people. Um,
1: That's actually a very interesting approach, and you know you yeah. you're exactly right. There is a shortage of people who know Cold Fusion and who, you know, do Cold Fusion on a let's say on an advanced level. Yeah. So I think that is actually something more people should look into. And realistically, I mean when I look at my clients, that's what at least some of them basically resorted to because they said, Well, there's no way we can get the Cold Fusion developers we want. So yeah. we, you know, grab someone who is a web developer or a graduate who started doing, you know, yeah. who learned PHP at uni or whatever. And then, you know, we basically teach them ColdFusion along the way.
0: Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it was it was a pretty... I really enjoyed that that presentation. That was really good as well. Um, after that, Bob Silverberg did a, a really good presentation on contributing to open source and why you should contribute to open source. He uh, basically told it like a story and said, you know, this dude wrote some code and he put it out there and this is what he learned and all this sort of stuff and why you should go out and write open source code and why you should help you know, open source projects and do all that sort of stuff and why it's all a really good thing. And he had some pretty compelling arguments around, you know, helping out your community, learning brand new things that you might not necessarily, you know, get to do. Basically being able to have complete freedom when you're doing development work, which yeah. you might not necessarily have when you're, you're at work. Um, but, you know, being able to experiment with different things and different technologies and different ideas and do all that sort of fun stuff. So yeah, that was also pretty compelling as well. So that was that was good fun.
1: Cool. And you talked about the next version
0: of Confusion, right? I did indeed. That's actually, um, it's
1: actually a, a quite interesting I know topic to to speak about in the keynote, isn't it? I mean it's the most secretive topic of all the four presenters. Yes. More or less.
0: More or less. Um, unfortunately, I had to cut it all a little bit short because we were running over time and I was I was placed in the last session to kind of have the most bang for, my, bang for the buck, you know, at the end, I suppose. Not yep. to say that my session was any better, just in terms of its content and people kind of, I'm sure, gravitate towards that. Um, so, I went through a lot of the stuff that, we, that had already been presented at things like Scratch on the Rocks, for example, but we did also have a few little bits and pieces that were exclusive for us, so that was pretty cool. Um, what you thought should we should we go through some of them yeah we can do that we can do that so big things that uh, basically talked about uh, obviously J-RUN's out the door yeah we've got Tomcat under the hood now which I think is pretty cool Tomcat's an awesome awesome project you've done some work with Tomcat haven't you
1: yes and I really like it actually it's um, from my point of view really way nicer than J-RUN is particularly you know because it's it's so widely used and You know, there's lots of knowledge in the in the general web community on Tomcat. There's tons of documentation out there, blogs. You know, people talk about the product, basically, and you can learn yeah. and pick up a lot of knowledge really easily. And with JRun, you know, being not actively developed for the last few years, basically, yep. it's pretty much like a dead horse, really.
0: So, yeah, and I think the memory footprint's a lot smaller on Tomcat as well. It is, yes. I mean, I, yeah.
1: I can... I haven't used Tomcat in production environments yet because yeah. it was never officially supported, really. Um, but all the testing I've done on you know, local instances on my Mac and on Windows clearly yep. show that the memory footprint with ColdFusion on Tomcat is, in general, lower than with um, ColdFusion on JRun.
0: That's pretty cool. So, yeah, lots of fun stuff coming with that. I, actually, yeah, I think it's going to be pretty exciting to see what f- what features we can leverage off the Tomcat stack. So... That yeah. should be pretty cool. Uh, finally, Verity is gone. It is no more. It's also getting kicked out the door. Um so it's all solo powered.
1: That's an interesting thing, right? I mean a lot of people liked Verity, I think. Yeah. Um so for the, A lot of know, people hated Verity too. <laughs> totally, you know, I totally agree. But you know, for, for those people who just wanted to have something that was sitting there worked. You know, yeah. and in the instances when it worked, actually. Yeah, they will probably be reasonably unhappy
0: with well, Verity they've being built really... in the capabilities of of what Verity had in the Solar Search. Yeah, I mean, so they should be able to transplant one for the other in theory, without having you know things like a document limit or anything like that. Yeah. So that that I think is something they've done. They've only exposed like just the smallest sliver of what Solar can do. So I'm really hoping that they they start to push that out because you've heard me rant about how awesome I think Solar is.
1: Yeah, but I mean you can still, you know, use the can you use the built-in solar engine to, you know, access it from Java, from Core Fusion pages?
0: Uh, I should be able to. I'm just trying to think. They've set it up as multi-core, which means you can have multiple indexes, so you don't have to muck around with the CF1. Um, and they use the Solar J API because I looked at it underneath the hood. Um, so you could do it that way as well. Okay. And it's pretty easy to use. Solar is easy. We, I've set it up, I set it up standalone because I did not want to muck around with the, uh, the CF instance and just running it on Jetty yep. and it's really lightweight. Uh, we've got about a thousand documents and it. it's about 20 megabytes, 30 megabytes in memory. It's like nothing. Um, and, um, yeah, just using the Solar J client, which is the, the Java client, to talk to it using Java to load it up, yeah, it's easy, easy, fantastic, it's fast. very, very fast.
1: Yeah, cool.
0: So, yeah, Sol is awesome. Oh, I won't say any more than that. Uh, you'll probably like this, because I know you do a lot of stuff with web services, and I've heard you talk about web services in CF more than once, uh, web service being updated to access too.
1: Yeah, that is really cool. I like that, indeed.
0: Really means nothing to me i don't do anything with no, that's,
1: that's fair enough i think i've you know i ranted about the whole thing in an earlier episode already when we talked about the announcements of um uh, yeah scotch on the that rocks right. um yeah i think that's one of the most important moves for the whole interoperability side of things in cold fusion
0: yeah so that's all good uh yeah i think we have talked about a few of these things so there's scheduled tasks have been updated so you can do chaining and conditions and grouping and application specific. The uh, the question I asked at the keynote was uh, who has a batch process that runs at 3am because we assume that 3am will mean that we have low traffic and I got a lot of hands going up and it's sort of like well it is the internet and we assume that 3am is low traffic but we don't actually really know. So uh, being able to do conditions and things like that is really really useful especially as we might be able to get a batch process to run more than once per day, you know, that might actually be a good thing because you know stuff's low at that point in time. Yep. So that's all cool. I like jobs. Jobs are really exciting actually. Being able to basically go execute this stick this bit of code in the queue and then it, something else on the other side just pops stuff off the queue and executes it as it needs to run. That's just awesome.
1: Yep. I agree.
0: I like that I like that a lot. Um They've stolen one of my projects, Java Loader, of course. As usual, yeah. Something that has to go. It uh, just has to happen. I think it's a given. Uh, I'm going to start running it. They're going to start stealing projects faster than I can make them, and then we're going to have an issue. I ah. don't have to start making up. That could cause, st-
1: you know, in some sort of a black hole in the end of the universe problem. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we can't have that. Um, so, uh, so that's really, really good. Um, I think it's actually good that Java Loader's in it because it, it's. It's, I think it's one of it's actually on REA Forge. It's the most downloaded project on RA Forge. It's,
1: it's totally useful. You know, it should be it should be part of the of the product, and that's a good thing. Yeah,
0: yeah. I like the fact that the uh, dynamic proxies component now will be in there and supported, which makes things very very easy. Um, so for crazy like just being able to do calling Confusion components from Java, I mean, without Java knowing any different, is very 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 powerful. Yeah, um, I think we've we've talked about that before, if I'm correctly. So yeah, I turn, think we turn. have actually yeah I've, you would, know
1: actually. anything that improves the integration of Cold Fusion with Java is per se good for me from my point of view yep. you know, yep. it just makes your life easier
0: and I think it's going it's, to I mean it basically solves that problem where people go, "Ah, oh, there's, a, there's a Java API that can call some code that can do exactly what I want, but I can't make it call anything from Cold Fusion. How yeah, do I do that exactly. and I you're like, well, actually now you can." But, so that's good. I had a great slide for HTML5 jQuery. It basically just said HTML5 and jQuery because I don't know what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> um, the uh, the big stuff I actually got out today got uh I got out I, I released or I talked about I was able to uh, tell people was the closure syntax. Mm-hmm. As we've talked before, I'm a huge fan of closures. I think they're really really powerful uh, language construct, and we uh, basically show off some examples of exactly what the closure syntax would look like. Um, and I went through a couple of examples. I got cut off at that particular point in time, basically because we just we just ran out of time. Um, and I was going through three different examples. I think, um, I won't talk about them too much now, I think, because closures are, we could talk about closures for a whole episode. Um, at the, if you go to our, our blog when we post this up, I'll make sure I post a link to Tim Cunningham here he posted a video of the entire keynote, so people can actually have a look. And there's, there's, a, you can catch the, the right hand side of the presentation keynote, <laughs> so you can see the closure example there. But uh, I think it works pretty well. Yeah, I yeah. think it's
1: easier to understand the concept of concepts of closures when you actually see some code.
0: Yeah, it's really hard well, to really
1: talk yeah. talk about them, you know, in that abstract way by yeah. just describing
0: what they are. Well, the whole point of closures is, is about having more concise code. Yeah. So. At the end of the day if you can't see the code you can't you're really not quite sure how it's more concise um yeah,
1: the, the interesting thing i just think about actually when i look at um what you presented at the keynote is the your examples for the strategy pattern oh yeah that is actually a really nice um you know way to use closures yeah it's fantastic
0: it's fantastic so um just so for those who aren't who at the keynote or Actually, nobody nobody heard this because I didn't get to it in the keynote. Um, uh, talking about doing stuff like, for example, if you had an object that output a grid onto a page, so like a, a grid formatter object, and you wanted to be able to say, "This is how I want you to output you know, my date." So you want to have a, a certain a certain way of, of displaying dates. Now, you could do that a couple of different ways. You could do that, say, maybe some arguments when you first pass it in. Um, but that can get a little messy, you know. Maybe you have to pass in a, a date format and a time format, or maybe an optional time format, or you know, all that sort of fun stuff. If you want to, you could, you know, you could use it, implement a strategy pattern, which makes sense as well. So you actually have to write a date formatter object that then gets passed in, um, which works. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just there's obviously a lot of code that needs to be written around that, and every time you want to do a different format date formatting, you have to create a whole new object and you have to put all that in. Probably implement some sort of interface or something like that. What's nice about being able to use a closure is you can actually basically write two lines of code, pass in a closure, and it can, it'll just call the closure and whatever the closure does is whatever the closure returns. So whether you want it to be, you know, US date format, Australian date format, Australian date format with the time, you know, a date format in a completely different language. You don't have to write a whole new object. You can just write a closure, which is like, you know, two or three lines of code and boom, you can be on your way, which is pretty powerful stuff. Yeah. Um... Probably the other one that uh, was brand new and hadn't been talked about before was that the, uh, the SAPI OWASP project is now integrated with ColdFusion. That is really cool. Which is really cool. Um, so that gives us some functionality, some, some functions right out of the box to, if you've got HTML fragments or JavaScript fragments that you want to be able to allow your, your users to be able to put on a page, you can now just encode those straight off the bat using these functions, so it'll strip out any sort of cross-site scripting attacks and stuff. So that's pretty powerful stuff right there.
1: So for for the people maybe who have no idea what we're talking about, the OWASP project is the Open Web Application Security project. Yep, I think that's what the the characters mean. And Listen. the ES API is sort of their I don't know their their major product they are building yeah. and, and delivering, and it's basically a um, or implementations of security. Functionality for you know cross-site scripting, for all sorts of other things to make your web applications more secure.
0: Yeah, they've got stuff for cross-site scripting. They've got stuff for um, uh, cross-what requ- well, is it, CRLF or CLRF? I can remember which way it was. Uh, Cross-request forgery. What does that stand for? Yeah, I have to look it up.
1: Yeah, I I, inv- oh, I, I prepared a few things for a um, web security workshop a while ago. Yeah, and when I did that, when I did a bit of research on some things, I found one really interesting attack I've never thought about before, and that is XQuery. Uh, no, sorry, XPath injection.
0: Oh, that's an interesting one.
1: And there was so a whole it's... section on you know how people do that and what people do with that basically to inject stuff into XML um, XPath expressions. I thought, oh, actually, yeah, you know, you need to. Actually, have a quite quite good look into that because it can, depending on what you're doing with XPAS, create some harm.
0: Sorry, I got, I just realised I uh, got my acronyms all messed up. Cross-site request forgery is the one I was thinking of, which is CSRF, ah. which is does stuff where basically you've got you've got your completely different site on one other place that may look like another site, and then it posts to a, a completely different site. Um, CRLF is a is a carriage return and line feed issue. Is basically uh, it, how does that work? Um, oh, the, basically, I think it was. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm probably going to explain this really, really badly. Basically, putting in carriage returns and line feeds in particular places so that it doesn't look like things don't look like what they're meant to look like. Mm-hmm. Um, very similar to like a cross-site scripting attack where a person goes to a page it's got a url there and there's some sort of script in the url and the site looks like the site that you normally look at so you trust it um but it's got some sort of content in it that a hack has given you so bad stuff all around so but that's that's all cool apparently they're also using this app project to lock down the competition administrator which is not a bad thing at all um and since the classes will be in there we can just kind of instantiate them and do stuff with them so that was all good. And uh, the final slide I put up there, it was just a big black slide that said the words, the next release of CF is planned earlier than expected.
1: Ooh, that's very secretive.
0: That's very, yeah. I wonder what which, that
1: could mean. Which, <laughs> which,
0: interestingly enough, didn't really seem to um, create, I don't know, I expected a little bit more in terms of maybe some blog posts or some Twitter posts or people asking me questions about it. And I got... I think I've seen like two blog posts. I got nothing. I was actually really surprised. I thought that was going to go down as a as a something that people were going to be really interested in, and uh, yeah, people were like, yeah, it'll get here when it gets it.
1: Yeah, interesting. Maybe maybe because you were running out of time, people didn't really you know realize it as some sort of a big thing. Maybe people think it's like, oh, you know, he's just making something up to... Make it in, make, the, make the make the final slide of the talk a bit more interesting and more spectacular. I so I don't know. We'll don't see. Know. Anyone will see what that means, you know. Exactly. I
0: so in case in case the importance was was missed, the next release of Cold Fusion is coming sooner than expected.
1: As officially announced by Mark <laughs> Mandel on this podcast now. <laughs>
0: Again. <laughs> Again. <laughs> Who knows. Maybe maybe people won't care. Maybe they're like, ah, eh, you know, this confusion thing. It comes when it comes. We'll deal with it when it shows up. Blah blah blah.
1: Yeah. Who knows?
0: So um, but yeah, and yeah. So I will post the uh, the link to the keynote. Uh, there's a video which is really cool uh, that Tim Cunningham did, and so people can have a have a, a watch of it as themselves. I don't think it shows a lot of the slides. I think you're missing out a lot of the slides. But hey, better than nothing if you couldn't attend. Yep,
1: yeah, I agree.
0: And Kai might actually even watch it, even though he didn't in preparation for our podcast.
1: No, I'm sorry. I just <laughs> ran out of
0: time. <laughs> Frankly, it's unacceptable, but I will live. I'm just a little hurt. It's okay.
1: It's not the end of the world in the global scheme of things.
0: <laughs> no, but I do like giving you grief for it. That's fine. Uh, <laughs> so uh, just talking through, maybe you want to talk through some of the sessions I went through and you can have a chat about, all that sort of fun stuff.
1: Yeah. What I found interesting is, I mean, when I look at the sessions you attended, because yeah. Mark pro- provided me with a list basically of things we can talk about, and there seems to be an, a quite interesting focus on sessions on JavaScript and sessions on cache. So where does that come from, Mark?
0: Uh, I went to the sessions that looked interesting to me and stuff that i not necessarily had... Uh, either I wanted to learn a little bit more about or I didn't know anything about either. Okay, so um, should we start with
1: talking about the EH cache sessions? Because I find yep. that I find EH cache really interesting, and from my point of view, it's one of the um, big things um, you should know about when you build web sure. applications. Really.
0: So I went to uh, two sessions on EH cache. One was undocumented enough script called Fusion EH cache by Rob Brooks Bilson. Yep. And the second one I went to was implementing an in-memory distributed cache using. Um, Cold Spring AOP and EHK uh, by Adam Bellis. Adam, uh, that was basically one of the sponsor talks. Terracotta sponsored the conference.
1: Oh, uh, okay. But it was actually
0: really, it was really interesting. Uh, uh, sponsor, I know people can often get a little wary when they see that, you know, it's a sponsored talk, you know, they're worried about it's gonna be a sp- sales pitch, but actually it was fantastic. Um, Terracotta's offerings are actually really, really interesting. What they can, what they can do, and the levels at which they've got stuff at. Um, it's definitely if you're looking at doing distribution with, with the education stuff, I'd recommend having a look at, at Terracotta and what they can offer you. It's pretty, pretty slick stuff. Um, and, and Rob, Rob, I think talked about it. i have I to remember, but if, if I remember correctly, Rob talked about Terracotta a bit as well. Um, Rob's talk I'd seen before. It's a really good talk, uh, though he had some extra bits bits in it as well, he started talking about he talks about how you can have basically an in-process cache and an out-of-process cache and the ramifications of both. Maybe we
1: should explain what the difference basically is. Okay, so the the H cache is a a Java solution, right? So if you run ColdFusion or any other web application server, you run it on top of a JVM and you're basically, the decision you want to make is is your cache set up in the same JVM and that would be an in-process cache pretty much Yep. Or is it set up in a different JVM or on a different machine or on a different part of the world, you know, whatever, basically in, you know, not in your process, basically.
0: Yeah. Um, actually one thing that, that I think, now I've got to sort through my memory, but I'm pretty sure I've quickly, correctly. Both of them actually said, well, basically the way you want to set things up is what you want is you want an out of process cache and an in process cache because the in process cache is always going to be faster. Yeah, it is. Same memory space. You don't have to go to another machine. There's no network latency. There's nothing like that that you need to worry about. So what you basically have is locally you have a local cache of your distributed cache, and they sync sync up to each other.
1: Yeah, you can do that. Um, I think it always depends on the use case. I mean, I've got a few scenarios where we just have in-process caches,
0: yeah, if you've got enough memory to cover it, then that's yeah, okay. Particularly if you, if you, on like
1: 64-bit machines with eight gig, yeah. 8 gig of memory or so. It's not really an issue usually, depending, yeah. again, depending on how much stuff you throw into your cache, obviously.
0: <laughs> yeah, and also, you know, if you have clustering and all that sort of stuff, then you have other issues there. Yeah. Um, so I should, I should say, both of them said when you have extremely large caches that aren't going to fit on a single machine, the best practice that both of them seem to have come across, and, and someone correct me if, if I'm bringing this wrong, but I'm pretty sure I've got this right, I think, is, yeah, so you have basically what's what's essentially a local version of your distributed cache um, that takes as much as it possibly can, so that you, on first hit, you'll get that network latency as it goes off and syncs with the distributed cache or the, the out-of-process cache, but then after that, you get the, the performance of having an in-process cache, and the in-process cache can then for manage itself locally, and then if it needs stuff from the, the, distribu- from the distributed or the out-of-process case, you can go off and get it. So you get some win there in terms of performance, which is actually pretty cool. So it was it was fun stuff that way. Rob went actually into the uh, EH cache search functionality, which is actually kind of cool. Um, so basically, being able to use EH cache essentially as a key document, no, not a document store, but a, a, a key value store, okay. and being yeah. able to search against it, which is uh, kind of powerful. I'm not I'm not quite sure where I'd end up using something like that. Um, but I could see it being, I can see it, if you had a, a use for that, it would be very powerful, if that makes sense. It, um, was, it was pretty cool stuff.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, wh- how, how we use EH cage at the moment in one project is basically by storing a lot of um, translation oh, yeah. data in the cage, basically, because we really. Don't know, you know, which languages, which translations, which local... So you're doing it for
0: internationalization, pretty
1: much? Yeah, pretty much, actually. And that's, you know, an extremely nice way, basically. Uh, We publish the cache on application start, basically. Yeah. And um, then just run off that cache. And, I mean, yes, we could do it in other ways. You know, you could throw them into the application scope, in huge query objects, or whatever. I mean, there are tons of ways how you could do that stuff with ColdFusion. Yeah. But one of the reasons why we went with AEH cache at the time was that if we want to cluster it, it will be very easy to do that. Yep. Um, and the other thing is it has a quite interesting set of options for cache management, obviously. Yep. You know, getting statistics, yep. um, different strategies, you know, which things are cached and held in the cache and which are released after a while. So that makes it really, really flexible. And, you know, it just saves you from implementing all that stuff yourself.
0: Yep. Yeah, yep. yep. That no, that all makes sense, but it's actually pretty cool. I'm just looking through the uh, this, the cache searching stuff. You can search on key, you can search on value, you know. So if you actually wanted to do stuff like turn around to your cache and say, give me give me all the you know all the string keys for a particular language, you're a lot easier You may have yep. to do that without having to go through all the keys inside a cache, which could end up being you know hundreds, thousands, millions, yep. depending on your cache environment. So pretty cool stuff. So yeah, went to that. I've, I've always been quite interested in, in clustering caches and stuff like that, and so wanted to check that out, which I thought was pretty pretty cool. Um, there's there's a few other bits and pieces. There's not just EH cache and JavaScript. Um, the JavaScript stuff was. There's, there's <laughs> I was just <other>, teasing you. <laughs> there's other stuff in there. Um, I have to. I have to uh tip my hat to uh, my man, uh, Mark Escher, who did a, a wonderful presentation about ORM Zen, which was both informative and hysterical at the same time. If anyone gets a chance to watch Mark Escher speak, I'd highly recommend it. I'd watch him talk about paint dry. He's hysterical. Um, he basically went through all the things that he mucked up when he first started doing ORM with Golf Fusion and said, this is how I did it. This is why it went wrong. And this is why you shouldn't do it this way. Do it this way instead. Yeah, you know those
1: sessions are usually really good learning experiences. I like that. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and always highly amusing as well, (laughs) which is always good. But uh, yeah, yeah, it was good fun Um, sitting there. I was actually sitting next to Barney Bovert, who's also a a, a Confusion ORM and Hibernate aficionado, and he and I were sitting there making comments on what Mark was talking about, and it it was lots of fun, which is good fun. So that was good. I uh, really, really appreciated that. I think most people would have walked out of that session with some, with some new knowledge. Yeah. Because sometimes OEM can be a bit of a beast and it can throw some errors at you that are like, what is this doesn't even make sense. And so it's, it can be, if you haven't wrapped your head around it yet, it can be daunting and it can be a bit complex. And, you know, it it solves a problem but also provides a whole bunch of other complexities as well on top of that. So it's a, it's a bit of a trade-off. Yeah. So but lots of fun.
1: So your JavaScript sessions... Um we're both done by Elliot Spreen, right?
0: Yes. I think it's Elliot Spren, actually. Spren. okay. Sorry. I believe so.
1: Um, how did you find those? I mean, they've been about really advanced. Well, they're on the schedule,
0: so I just went to the rooms that they told me to go to. That's how I found them. It was, it was pretty easy.
1: Mom, <sighs> seriously.
0: <laughs> Dude. So, <laughs> how did you like those sessions? <laughs> yes. Um, no, they're great. They're great sessions. I've I've chatted to Elliot for for a number of years. Um, he's a su- super super smart guy. He works at Google, uh, and and he talks us through some of the JavaScript stuff that they're doing at Google and how they're doing it. Well, at least in his team, anyway. Um, and they were they were fantastic sessions. Actually, they're probably I would say some of the most interesting content I probably got out of the conference. Um, and probably you know change the way I do some things with JavaScript as well. His, uh, his test driven development in JavaScript and, and JavaScript test director, test driver, test driver. It um, was really, really fascinating. Um, if anyone's had a, gonna, gonna, is it all interested in unit testing, he, Elliot brings up a really valid point and he was talking about it, how basically, so we write our coefficient components and we stick them in MXUnit and it's all, you know, it's all in this test driven development and it's great. And if you're not doing that, you should be. Just throw that in there while I'm at it. Um, you know, maybe you're doing sort of, you know, uh, other Selenium tests and stuff. But when it when it comes to your server-side code, you know, you, you have this framework and you just, you live within it and you can just go run tests and you're like, sweet, this is great. And then when it comes to writing JavaScript, you're like, as Elliot puts it, it's the wild west again, you know, we're all cowboys. Mm-hmm. You just start writing jQuery code all over the shop and you've got no way of bang- being able to say, hey, this is this is testable or, you know, let me throw this in a unit test harness so that I know that it's doing what you know, the logic's meant to be doing. You just kind of just write JavaScript and maybe we will use a Selenium test or something like that um, to test the UI and things like that. But really, at the end of the day, the, the core business logic of whatever your JavaScript does really isn't testable. And he's totally right because I, I, as soon as he said that, I'm like, oh, my God, you're totally right. I do that all the time. You know, you just get in there and you bang out a few lines of jQuery and you're like, sweet, done, awesome. Um, and, and I do a lot of stuff with Selenium and, and where I am w- work a lot of work at the moment, we do a lot of Selenium stuff. And the and it works. I mean, you can do it. There's, there's nothing wrong with it. Um, but as Elliot puts it, it's really slow. And he's totally right. It takes like a good 20 minutes for our build to run because of all the Selenium tests. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and what Elliot went through was basically a way of structuring, structuring a code in a, in a very simple, it was, essentially ended up being sort of an MVC pattern. Um... For, for JavaScript, being able to structure code and, and how to break it out into components, essentially, or objects, then being able to throw them at a JavaScript test driver. Um, Jasmine's basically just an extension of that using behavior-driven development rather than, like, a, a test-driven development, mm, okay. which is essentially the same thing for a lot of people if anyone's looked at that at all. Um, it's just a slightly different way of how you describe your tests and stuff, but Jasmine's quite nice as well. It's just an extension of JSTD. Um, but the real thing i took away from it was basically going okay so he splits up his work this way he even goes as far as you know mocking out you know uh, xhr requests or doing ajax requests so you can test things on the fly that way without having to actually go back to the server it's not really integration test um all that sort of stuff so that you can run your unit tests on all your javascript code it's stupid fast and you actually know that what you expect is going to happen is going to happen um, and it's it's pretty fascinating stuff, and and Elliot explains it really well as well. In terms of why they do it at Google, is basically Google, um, is, as he puts it, everyone runs on the head of their uh, of their I don't know what they're using for so basically their version control. Everyone runs on head.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That's how the entire corporation works. <laughs> yeah, the entire corporation works on head. So if you break your library, you could be breaking somebody else's code. Know, if, you know, that's, that's really important. So it's really, really, really important to have a, a wide variety of unit tests that cover all your code, but also run really, really fast. Because there are so many yep. unit tests that run at a given point in time, which I'm like, yeah, that makes, certain, that makes so much sense. And I, get, I can totally get why they do that. Um, see, yeah, see, I, I
1: find exactly the same thing with uh, writing jQuery code or JavaScript code in general. It's totally yep. messy. You know, JQuery, writing jQuery code basically... You yeah, you end yeah, up having really like, like a JS file with yeah. you know your document ready function. You throw all the stuff in there, and you know you you might refactor some things out into methods in an object structure, and that's the first step. But you know most of the time you don't get to done more. Basically, you get to do more, yeah. and it's pretty much untestable code. And when I started yeah. getting into jQuery more and more, I found it really weird because from doing front end and client side development in flex before obviously i would want to unit test stuff right yep and in 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 flex you you can have a similar issue basically in cases where you have your mxml like your ui declaration mm-hmm. messed up or mixed with action script i don't know, oh, yeah. you know view related business logic in the same document because then it's essentially as untestable as, you know, jQuery, HTML, mishmash code, basically, and there are just you know there are a bunch of well-defined patterns to get around that. You can you know use a view helper, even though a view helper doesn't really make it extremely well testable, but you could use presentation model patterns basically, where you you Mm -hmm. know extract the the view-related business logic into its own class, and there are tons of ways how to how you can improve and unit test view code in Flex. And I look at the, the, the jQuery stuff we produce sometimes. It's like, oh, God, really? We need to do something on that end as well. You know, yeah, exactly. Nice.
0: So yeah, we do. Yeah, we do a lot of our testing of that stuff with with Selenium. But yeah, the the structure of it, it's not not that great. Um, it's it's you know yeah you're right. Everyone just kind of writes a JavaScript folder and file and stick stuff in it, and it's just like boom, there you go. It's like oh. ah. Yeah. The, sort of the, the
1: other thing you can argue though is you know when you think about a. a traditional web application with an html client and cold fusion or whatever on the back end should your views have that much business logic in the first place that you need to unit test them
0: well if you're doing complex you know ajax style applications they're gonna have it yeah i mean if you want to do a cart page that totals up um you know your your total amount of Know, what, what, what a, you know, what a person puts in, you know, changes the quantity on, say, something in their card item and it re-updates their total and maybe applies discounts or whatever. That's all business logic that sits in there. Yeah. And you can't do that all server-side. I mean, you could, but it would be also a lot faster to just do a client-side.
1: Have you actually thought about um, the effects or the implications of having all that business logic client-side and basically everyone really being able to just copy and paste your code and your intellectual property pretty much?
0: Yeah, it's an interesting one too. I can totally see where you're coming from there. It's um,
1: and that that dawned to me like a few weeks ago, for the first time, after I realized that we write so much JavaScript and jQuery code, basically yep. that you think, well, you know, probably I don't know, twenty or thirty percent of what's happening in that part of the application is actually happening in you know in the browser in the browser, basically, right? And it's you know, any random user can just go there and, and grab it, and you know. Maybe, uh, not not really use it one-to-one, but, you know, no. take it and modify it slightly and do something with it.
0: I guess at the end of the day, it boils down to how transparent are your business rules anyway, really? Um, I guess, you know, HTML JavaScript, people can always rip that off just because you can get at it. That's fair enough. I mean, you've got stuff like minification processes. I mean, you can even go as far as obfuscation processes um
1: yeah you can but that's and, getting
0: a bit crazy i think yeah
1: and people i mean even in you have the same problem in flex right because you can decompile the swift easily
0: yeah yeah um yeah.
1: but at the end i mean you just make it a bit harder you're not you're not solving the problem by using obfuscation
0: yeah it's not uh it's not a fail safe it's no silver bullet that's for sure
1: Okay, sorry, that was a slight diversion into nope, that's my fine. concerns on, about JavaScript and you know, how yeah. to deal
0: with it. But the second, the second session on that uh, Elliot did, which was also really cool, he works or he helps out on a project um, called Angular AngularJS. Uh, it's, a, it's a JavaScript framework basically that allows you to sort of set up things that he was actually talking about with the testing side of things and how he splits out his code. And it's pretty fancy stuff. Basically, I almost think of it as a spy on steroids.
1: Mm, okay.
0: um, it's it's very very cool. I'm just looking for the URL, so I, I make sure I get it right. It's it's yeah, it's pretty cool. It allows two way binding, much like you could have in in Flex. Mm-hmm. Um, it has a whole framework for setting up uh, MVC. It does dependency injection for you as well when you start doing more complex applications, um, and it also you know allows you to do like sort of declarative. It calls it declarative UI templates. So you essentially write these html templates you put double squiggly brackets much like we would use hashtags mm-hmm. and you can start replacing variables and stuff like that on the fly as well so it's so pretty it is,
1: it's like binding sp- in flex literally yeah
0: it's like it's basically like if you wanted to do flex but you wanted to do it in html this is a pretty good way of doing it
1: mm, okay i need to have a look into that then
0: yeah angular is angular is slick from what i was looking at and i'm trying to i've been trying to look for a uh, an excuse to use it it is it is pretty pretty slick um it does all sorts of fun stuff um but it also you know it doesn't it doesn't get in your way either in terms of like it's basically just a framework you want to go in and use ExtJS or jquery or whatever else with it and it's like bam you know it's right there it's really nice um it's really cool And and it provides a lot of the uh the testing utilities in there as well which is really nice so it integrates with uh, I'm pretty sure it integrates with JSCD and and that sort of stuff and so it's pretty pretty cool
1: okay nice
0: yeah it's very cool stuff and it provides I think if I remember correctly from what I was looking at it provides a lot of the mocking stuff that you might necessarily need uh, for doing all your unit testing and all that sort of stuff Um, yeah because one one interesting thing that Elliot said which was pretty pretty cool and I actually kind of like it as well, um, is he's saying that when, you, when you're when unit testing JavaScript, stay away from the DOM as much as possible. So basically, all your business logic is encapsulated. Um, and when it comes to doing your DOM stuff, you'd have that also encapsulated in a separate file. So basically, you take the logic in and you do, and you do what you need to do to display. Reason being that the DOM is really, really slow. It's, it's really, really slow because it's really, really complex, whereas doing regular JavaScript unit testing is, is really fast because JavaScript is an insanely fast language.
1: Yeah, I need, I need to have a look in at one of his examples. I, I'm just wondering how you can easily separate the DOM operations from actually, the real business logic because in Java surprisingly
0: it's pretty easy. I mean, do it like, it, you do it like you do on the server side. Yeah, I mean, I can, see, I can see how you do it. How you, would,
1: how you would do it technically, but you know, sometimes you're, I don't know, let's say you're mo- you're doing something on click of a button, right? And yep. you you know you submit some sort of an Ajax request to the backend. And while this request is running, you want to, uh, let's say, uh, disable a few other buttons right? that people can't click crazily in your UI, right? Yeah. Um, and then when the request response comes back, you enable those buttons again, or those UI components, something like yep. that. You know, in that case, you probably end up with five or six lines of code, but it would be extremely difficult really to separate the business logic. As Not at such- all.
0: Not really. I mean you've got you, you basically said okay when you've clicked the button you've disabled two other buttons fair enough that's view code
1: that's dumb stuff
0: obviously that's dumb stuff yeah. that's, it's in, that's it's in its own sort of view view code when you've gone back to the the cl- business client so you've gone back to whatever, like a business delegate or or some sort of remote proxy or something to say give me some information for your AJAX request that should go to your controller that's your view calling a controller to say hey I need this information and then however the your controller yeah, that is, that, a good point, actually. That, is yeah. that is entirely up to it when that information comes back, then your view's like, oh, I have my information, great, thank you very much. Now I'm going to re-enable these buttons again because I'm the view and I know exactly what should be happening at the view. The controller has no idea what, what it is. So you have a controller there that you can actually test against. You can do, you know, you know, can mock out your, your XHRs, you can do all that sort of fun stuff. So, yeah, you can definitely have that separation. It's pretty cool.
1: Yeah, I might actually give that a try and have a look at his example. Uh, I re- might. Just refactor some of the jQuery code I've written recently, and see how the, how well that works and how easy that yeah. could be. done. His presentation
0: code is yep is up on the, his website. i uh, in fact, I'm pretty sure if I remember correctly, did they actually link to it from the safe Objective website?
1: Oh, that's a good a good question actually. Um, are the talks? and the slides and everything going to be made available on the CF objective side? Or how do the, those guys usually deal with that? Or is it just um, through the individual speakers' blocks or?
0: They, they did ask all of us for where our stuff was. Okay. Um, so I believe the plan was to put it, make it available somewhere, but I'm actually not seeing it on the website, so I might just go hunting and see if I can hook up some of these sessions and, and put it on. A, so I've definitely seen them. Um, my stuff's not up there, I could say. Normally what I like to do, I actually don't like putting up slides very much, to be honest, just because they don't have all the full content. Yeah. Uh, what They're I like usually to do quite is,
1: out of context, actually.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what I like to do is I'll go go hook myself up with CF Meetup. Say, let's do an online presentation. Do that, then have the recordings of that and put those online. And so you actually have the, the full presentation there that you can watch with everything that's involved there. So. Yeah, it's, I like, that's the way I like to do things. That's just me. Um, I don't know if they're putting the keynote slides up anywhere. I know the videos are up that I was talking about before. But... So, yeah, so that was cool. Um, the other interesting one I might, I might bring up, which was actually really good, was uh, Sean Caulfield's What is Functional Programming and Why Should I Care?
1: Oh, I can totally see that. I mean, besides that, John is an awesome, awesome speaker. Um, the topic of functional programming is really interesting
0: it's really interesting it's definitely coming back into its own again I think yep. you know these things go back and back and forth it's definitely seeing a lot of people and, and talking to a lot of people I can see I've, I've talked to a lot of people who are like yeah man you gotta get into this functional programming stuff it's awesome blah blah blah
1: I think you need to be careful people need to be careful though because it's a bit of a hype at the moment right and,
0: oh yeah you know,
1: just if, if you want to get into functional programming because you want to learn the concepts of it because yeah. the concepts are sort of important to know from my point of view and maybe you know Depending on when you attended uni, I think people might not have ever learned functional programming. Right? I never,
0: because, I never saw it.
1: Oh, okay, I did. Yeah. I did Haskell at, okay. at uni, and um, I worked with in a, in a project while I went to uni um, where they used ML to build some sort of a parser and compiler. So ML is another okay. functional functional environment. Degree?
0: Did you do, out of curiosity?
1: Uh, I have a degree in math
0: oh that's right yes i knew that so i've
1: got a master's in math with a focus on software engineering though because okay. because computer science was sort of part of the math department at the uni where i went to so there yep. was no full computer science you know program basically ah. and then i just used i just you know did computer science as one of the major subjects within math basically very interesting okay yeah you know it's interesting where you end up actually with doing something like that. A lot of sure. the people I you know, I went to uni with um, work here for insurance companies or banks or something like that nowadays. And a few went into academic careers, basically. I've got a few okay. people who are professors now for some really crazy math stuff, which I, where I look at it and I think, like, oh, my God, you know, <laughs> <It's> <laughs> totally inconceivable to me what, what they're doing. <laughs>
0: That's fair enough. So since you seem to have more experience than I, can you explain uh, very shortly what is, it, what is a functional programming language and what makes it so cool?
1: Oh, that's... You know, <laughs> to explain that Dude. shortly is really, really difficult. Basically, it's a, a development paradigm, right? Everything is a function. Functions are first-level citizens, you know, primary-level yep. citizens in your in your environment. And the nice thing is it basically... Forces you to develop in a very structured way, you know, like things like recursive programming, which a lot of mm. people avoid because oh, it's so difficult and I have no idea how to make that work. They are pretty much, you know, compulsory in functional programming because yep. it's the only way of getting things done, really. Um, and if because
0: everything's everything's immutable in functional programming, right? Nothing, much, yes. nothing changes. You have no state.
1: You have no state. Yes, and you don't have variables as such usually either. Um, so you know, it's a very very different way of developing applications from, for example, um, you know, using OO or using even I know procedural programming. Um, the we should maybe actually have you know a full recording just on functional programming and talk about yeah, we could totally do that. Way. That would be super interesting. What the The reason why functional programming is coming back at the moment is obviously the multi-core issue, right? Yep. Because yeah, because people yeah. realize that, well, you know, like we don't get that growth in CPU speed anymore because it's really hard to you know make them faster than they are now. Now so we just stick more of them together. We life. stick more cores onto like a little piece of hardware, basically. Yep. And with that, um, you run into issues with. Paralysing your code, right? Because if you, you know, have serialized code basically and eight cores in your CPU, then most likely seven of those cores will not do much. And that's really a bad thing because then, you know, the whole point goes down the drain. So from that point of view, um, functional programming is or can be used if used correctly to develop applications that scale better. That's how I would, you know, try to describe it. The problem or the downside with that is you know platforms like Java or ColdFusion as such are not functional platforms right so it's really hard for us in ColdFusion for example to make use of functional programming in a way to optimize our ap- applications for multicore for example that wouldn't really work but there are certain problems and certain algorithms and certain things you might want to do in a web environment which you know want to spawn across all your cores, and wh- where you maybe can break out of confusion into a functional technology, and you know just make use of that to solve a particular problem. And I've played a little bit with Erlang a while ago, oh, yeah. and particularly with the Erlang OTP libraries. And I find Erlang OTP an amazing platform. It's um, and, you know when you look at what people built with that, people build web servers in Erlang, people build um, chat environments in Erlang, stuff that has to be able to deal with lots of concurrent connections, stuff yep. that has to deal with, you know, highly paralyzed environments. And that's working really, really well. It's a tiny community. I think in we have a functional programming user group in Wellington, actually. Oh, wow. But, you know, it's attended by, I don't know, seven, eight people, something like that. And, you know, most people do not really bother yet to deal with that but even in the Java environment you have you know languages like Scala um, which run on the JVM basically which are some sort of hybrid between OOP and functional programming and where you can do some of the things yeah. you know from traditional functional programming like actors and things like that
0: I'm hearing a lot of stuff about Clojure that was one of the examples that uh, Sean was doing was doing a lot of Closure stuff um, and it looks pretty, that looks pretty interesting
1: yeah, Clover is another another big one on the JVM, I think. And, yeah. and for .NET people, there is um, F Sharp, which is oh, a yeah. you know, similar concept. Basically, it runs on the uh, on the Common Language Runtime from from the .NET yeah. framework. Basically, um, you know, people try to reinvent those ideas and make them work on the established platforms today. Because really, no one wants to develop Haskell for any production environment. To be honest, yeah. I think, you know, personally, I think. So yeah, so, we should we should maybe really you know do a special on functional programming and maybe get John to come on board and you know talk, yeah, you want talk to with on. us about that.
0: That'd be cool. That'd we, be really yeah. Lovely. I
1: think it's a totally useful thing to know. I mean, every yeah every developer should really know about the different development paradigms: OOP, functional programming, procedural stuff like that.
0: Yep. Um, probably the last one I might, might talk about was, you know, oh, actually the one the other one I want to talk about oh, I'll talk about really quickly as well is uh, Jason Steen's advanced web application security. Jason's a, a super smart fellow who knows a lot about web app security and uh, he talked through a bunch of very interesting things. Um, probably the highlights from that are things like the bcrypt algorithm, which is, is very much, um, he was talking about hashing, hashing passwords and things like that. And using bcrypt to essentially, how do I don't even explain it? So he was talking about when you when you hash stuff, you might necessarily hash it a certain number of times. Mm-hmm. So if you if you might do it a thousand times, because that means that if someone has to decrypt it or, or work their way through it, they have to do all that extra work to get stuff done.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: B, but the only problem with that is, is is CPUs get faster. The more you hash, the easier it becomes for them, for hackers to come in and, and decrypt it. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you wanted to say like then turn around and say hash more, you could do that, but you'd have to clear out all your old, you have to reset all your passes and all that sort of stuff because everything rehashes and rehashes and rehashes. Yeah. kind of sucks. Bcrypt kind of solves that problem because basically you put in what essentially is referred to, I think, as like a worker amount or something like that, and that's basically the time it takes to do what it needs to do, and that's somehow embedded in it. I don't understand the magic, to be completely honest, but you can increase your worker rate, uh, which will expand how long it takes to run but you can still, you're still hashing and dehashing. You can still hash and dehash exactly what you've got currently right in there. Well, actually it's, it's one-way encryption, so you can only encrypt. Um, so it takes, a bit, takes into account the whole Moore's Law thing where we're going to get faster CPUs. And so you can still take that into account when the CPUs start getting faster, you can just increase your work rate. It's all cool. You don't have to reset your passwords um, and everything's really, really, really secure. So that was some pretty cool stuff that he was talking about that I really liked. Um, just trying to think about other stuff that actually stuck in my head and unfortunately I'm having a I'm having a blank moment I'd have to go go hunting for his his session but it was um it was really really good session I really really enjoyed it
1: cool
0: uh, yeah not seeing it ah I'll have to think about it yeah I can't find it if I can't find it really quick then I won't I won't go look it up but um yeah, Jason's a super smart fellow. I really enjoyed his talk. If I project this stuff, um, oh yeah, he talked a lot about cryptography and why, why you should use certain cryptography and um, using SSL for pretty much just about everything and all that sort of stuff. Basically, how to how to keep everything really, really well locked down. So it was yeah, it was pretty cool stuff. It was pretty really cool stuff.
1: Cool, awesome.
0: Um, do you want to talk about my sessions? They probably were not that important.
1: We can briefly talk about yours, but, you know, you pretty much talked about Cold Spring and AOP, yeah. right?
0: Yeah, and so I... Uh...
1: Particularly, I think the AOP topic is probably worth, uh, it, again, its own you know, its own yeah. hour talking about it, because it's uh, complex, and so, oh, not complex, but there's so much to talk about, I think. Yeah. But maybe you know, if you could wrap up briefly what's new in Cold Spring 2.0.
0: So, yeah, I talked I about talked, I two sessions. I had ColdSpring 2.0, uh, what's new and improved, uh, what my friend Nathan Strutz turned around as it's not vaporware because we have a session on it every year. I've seen the code. <laughs> uh, like, <laughs> thanks, Nathan. Much appreciated. Um, he wrote as much in his blog post, too, <laughs> which was really delightful. But I like Nathan a lot. He gives me, he, he gives me a hard time sometimes, but that's OK. But um, yeah, just finishing off the, uh, the documentation for Cold Spring 2. So, that's basically what's holding that up. Um, Actually, I pushed out a whole bunch more yesterday, so I have to to write about that. But, um, so yeah, talk about Cold Spring 2 and and some of the new features in that. Uh, What did I talk about? Uh, I talked about all sorts of stuff. Let me bring out my speaker notes so I can actually remember what I talked about. But, (laughs) I think that's That's what we write this stuff for. Um, So, all sorts of good stuff in in Cold Spring 2, obviously. A whole new architecture, which um, which I talked about previously and, and... I went through a whole history of, of CF Objective, and so not CF Objective, but about a whole history of Cold Spring, and when it first started, which was actually back in 2005, which is actually, it's quite an old project, really. Um, sort of went through 2009. I was announced as lead developer. I then talked about how in 2009, Cold Fusion 9 came out, which meant that for some strange reason, I had a lot more time to work on other open source projects because I didn't seem to be working on a different open source project. I don't know why that necessarily might be, but you know, maybe there's some correlation there. Um, and then, yeah, sort of talking about sort of today and where we're at. So uh, cool stuff in, in Cold Spring, uh, XML namespaces for Cold Spring, awesome. So you actually have dedicated XML schemas that come with the ColdSpring XML file. So you get code hinting and all that sort of fun stuff. Okay. All sorts of fun and interesting ways to intercept when beans get created and also when the factory gets created. So you can actually really hack around with what happens to objects and when things happen to objects and what properties are set to objects, all that sort of fun stuff that that's, you know, gives you a lot of powerful stuff to really muck around with exactly what you bean factory is doing custom namespaces are a huge thing basically being able to write your own xml schemas and drop them into your xml file and being able to control what they do because you've got full control of, of cold spring from that point you can do pretty much anything to it so you can do some really really crazy stuff the example i gave in the presentation was basically being able to go like debug colon which is the namespace and then a debug element and that would actually just put some extra CFCs in your bean factory that track when bean you know, that log when beans get created, what beans get, are going to get created when your bean factory starts up, you know, be able to do cute stuff like that with really concise code. That would be it. handy, yeah. Yeah, you can do all sorts of stuff and stuff. Did some AOP demos very quickly, some aspect owner programming demos just to show off the new AOP stuff that's in ColdSpring Spring 2 that's insanely powerful. I'm really, really happy with how that turned out. Um, I also showed off the ORM integration as well. There's all sorts of classes in there for object-relational mapper integration um, and doing dependency injection on entities and that sort of stuff, um, as well as a whole bunch of helper classes that, that help you do some other funky stuff as well, which is really, really handy. Um, and then talked a bit about some of the utility classes that come with Cold Spring, which there is a whole bunch of, you know for doing things like dynamic proxies, um, managing how objects get cloned, and, and like if you want to do duplicates. Things like Observer, Observable Pattern Implementations, Singleton Pattern Implementations. Uh, and I could keep going and keep going. So there was all sorts of good stuff in there. Um, I need to do a recording of these two presentations and put them up. That's, that stuff's not available yet. Uh, I should hit up Charlie Earhart at some point and, and get that going. But uh, at some point I will get that going and uh, some people can see that stuff online. So yeah, lots of good stuff. Lots and lots of good stuff. Um, if you're interested in Cold Spring too, coldspringframework.org or you can find the Cold Spring... F- uh, Cold Spring Framework on SourceForge and also on Twitter as FW cool. So lots of places to find out more stuff about Cold Spring.
1: Is there an ETA for the final version of ColdSpring?
0: I'm, I'm literally at the moment writing documentation. It's the only thing it is that okay. really needs feature. and there's a lot of documentation to write um, just because Spring does or Cold Spring does so much. Basically, what I want to do is get the minimum amount of documentation that people will need to work on the new features. And once, it, once that's there, then boom, we'll just get it out the door and keep writing, keep writing the, uh, the documentation. Um, there is some stuff in there now, definitely. We've transplanted a lot of the original uh, documentation that Brian Kotek wrote for Cold Spring in five minutes and that sort of stuff. So the new platform, which is great. There's a migrating from Cold Spring 1.x to 2.0 document, which outline a lot of the issues with moving across. Um, and I think there's a few more examples I need to add to that. We were talking about the mailing list the other day. I finished off all the AOP stuff which is great because that's really really cool and really, really fascinating stuff so that's that's all written that took a while It was some that was sort of pages and pages of documentation but because there's a lot of a lot of powerful stuff in there and uh yeah so just going to get back into my grading guide and then move on to the ORM stuff and i've got a few more volunteers that have popped their heads up and said yep yeah, i want to i want to help out which is great so if anyone wants to help out with that sort of stuff please do drop me a line um you should be able to find me pretty easily and, uh, yeah. So once the once the documentation is done, it's ready to go. The code's code's ready to go. It's just yeah, just waiting on uh, on that aspect so people can actually know what they're doing. Awesome. So good stuff all around.
1: So we are basically already over an hour again. So oh really? We should probably come to an end. At, you know, reasonably soon I think. Fair Otherwise enough. we get complaints from people again that we just talk and talk <laughs> and talk and talk.
0: And talk. Fair enough. Do we have any events or jobs or anything like that? I actually Um, don't have anything on my list, but uh, I don't know if you do.
1: I don't have any current events or jobs. I had an event notification, actually, of a user group meeting. But unfortunately, that hit exactly pretty (laughs) much. It was after our last recording, but the meeting was before this recording while you've been to the U.S. So that was a bit tricky. Um, So, you know, the offer is totally valid if anyone in the community in Australia New Zealand wants to get their user group meetings or other events yep. not mentioned here just let us know but do it maybe not just two days before the event give you you know give us a bit more time that we can know actually have a yeah <laughs> <And> <laughs> That'd the, be
0: good.
1: the other thing I wanted to pimp quickly is um, creative camp New Zealand. Okay. Um, I mean, i talked about that a few times, but now we've got actually a website on creativecamp.co.nz. Yep. And um, we've got the first batch of speakers up there and also a few sessions. So we've got, like, really, really awesome people like Campbell Anderson, um, guy from New Zealand up in Auckland. Um, he's going to do something on Flash Player and 3D, the molehill yep. stuff. We've ah, got, cool. you know, well-known... Guys from the Colfusion community or ex-Colfusion community, like Mark Blair, for example, coming. Uh, Robin Hilliard is coming over from from Sydney. Justin McLean is coming back uh, doing something on WebSockets and Arduino hardware, which will be really interesting. Uh, Mr. Andrew Muller, one of the most famous um, Flash Flex guys in, in Aussie, is coming over. Richard Turner Jones, from Brisbane, so I've got a whole bunch of Aussies coming. It's really funny, actually. Um, cool. And we've got April Clark, who's um, one of the most well-known people for InDesign in the US, and she comes down from Cleveland, Ohio, just for a Creative Camp, which is really, really awesome. And she's actually doing a talk at the Creative Camp, but she's also doing a full-day workshop before yep. the before the event. And you know, I have no idea how many or what the demographics of our podcast are. But if you listen to this from Australia, and if you're looking for an event to attend which deals with Creative Suite and Flash platform and also some backend cloud stuff, then you should really have a look at Creative Camp NZ in Wellington. Because, yeah, you have to travel internationally, but realistically, trans-Tasman flights, if you book them early, you get them for 150 bucks nowadays. And yep. the Creative Camp itself is... Um, going to cost you 29 New Zealand dollars which is basically nothing really for what we offer in terms of sessions. The full day workshops the day before the camp will be around 400 New Zealand dollars um, for a full day of professional training from a few people Um, and uh, yeah, depending on when you book it, it will be around 400 plus minus a little bit. We have an early bird and a few things, but it's all on creativecamp.co.nz so that's my, you know, pimp. And even particularly with the New Zealand dollar to ex- Australian dollar exchange rate, it's a very attractive proposal for people from Australia from my point of view. Cool. That sounds really good. You should come, Mark. Maybe. <laughs> you should send your wife actually because she's a designer. She would probably love it. No. Nah. Oh, <laughs> <It would. laughs> oh. Okay, maybe not.
0: <laughs> nice try. Cool. I've tried to get it to come to like max and stuff before and yeah no interest okay
1: fair enough that's fine
0: so I'm sorry
1: cool so yeah that's <laughs> that much for Creative Camp Z. oh and cool. it happens in October end of October cool cool
0: well that all sounds really good okay I guess we should probably wrap up there
1: yes we should do that so what are we doing next uh, week that's or nice. in two weeks well, I have an Don't idea know. what we're doing, but I'm not going to tell we'll talk. the public yet.
0: No, okay. But we'll just, have it. We'll have a chat. We've got some you, really interesting ideas for some for some sessions. So. Yeah, will you, uh, we'll be secret. To just pick one. Okay. Um. Just want to make a shout out as well to say please send us emails, write comments on our blog. You know, respond to us on Twitter. Do all that sort of stuff. Um. Because it's really great having the interaction with people. So, it's funny. I I find that every time I, one of us says something like this, we get a whole. lot bunch of you know com- conversation going on and then as soon as we, we stop saying things like that people just kind of stop talking to us so i'll throw it out there again please come talk to us we really like it
1: please come talk to us yes yes please 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 <laughs> Are we be there Otherwise yes, we, please we, we cry
0: and it's very sad <laughs> and i'm no outside yeah, exactly
1: cool so that's it talk to yes. everyone again in a few days basically see you later see you later bye